This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. At the time this podcast was recorded, the teachers in Portland, Oregon were on strike. They were demanding higher wages, smaller classes, and more teacher preparation time. Teacher salaries in Portland currently average about $87,000 a year. Not bad. The Portland School Board offered them a wage uh, boost to uh, $97,000 a year dollars a year at the end of three years. Remember now, this is just for uh, 10 months of work. So there's always two months off for teachers. So it's not this, quite the same as your typical full-time employee. And of course, teachers also get very lucrative medical and retirement benefits, especially if they remain uh, teaching for a sustained period of time. So altogether, teachers seem to be well compensated but uh, at the same time, students in Portland are only beginning to recover from the longest school closures in in the state. Of, I, I don't know. We don't know for sure if it's really the longest, but it's one of the longest school closures in the nation. They were very reluctant in the state of Oregon to open the schools uh, during the 2020-2021 uh, school year. Uh, and now we've learned that elementary school enrollments in Portland uh, are, are down by 17% over where they were five years ago. Uh, that compares to a statewide enrollment decline of only 5%. So um, is this the right time for a teacher strike? One, one wonders. So I'm going to pose that question to Michael Hartney. He's a, a Hoover fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University who has been researching teacher unions for many years. He's just released a new study co-authored with Vlad Kagan of Ohio State University on the political power of teacher unions. And I'm very pleased to have Michael Hartney with me on the Education Exchange today. It's great to be here, Paul. Well, Michael, I, I didn't warn you this, but I am going to ask you this question. It, how can you go on strike given the uh, fact that Portland schools are suffering serious student enrollments? They've had the, the COVID and um, and teacher salaries aren't that bad in Portland. It's not like they're starving. It's a good question. I think part of the answer is the obvious fact that this is Portland, Oregon. And it's not uh, the red state teacher strikes of uh, 2018. Um, this is a very blue area. The unions are ensconced in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the state of Oregon. And I think most uh, important of all is what you've seen in terms of the change in how teachers unions and a lot of these uh, large urban communities are framing their job actions, which is you see the rhetoric now around common good bargaining. And I think that actually is not only very important, I think it's one of the reasons that unions have been successful with some of these strikes in places like Los Angeles, now Portland, Oakland as well. Um, but it will also relate to the study we're going to talk about today, which is that um, for folks who aren't familiar, the idea of common good bargaining uh, is essentially that the union stakes out a position that while they are asking for a salary increase, that's really not the most important thing that they're asking the district for. Instead, they care about more paraprofessionals, more counselors. In the case uh, of Portland, Oregon, they're even asking for the school board to do something about unaffordable housing. 
Um, so it's it's trying to essentially say we're out there on the front lines, not just bargaining for a better deal for teachers as employees, but for everyone in this community for a progressive political agenda. And I think that actually uh, plays to their advantage in a place like Portland, Oregon, probably wouldn't in, in another political environment. Well, that leads very much right into your study, Michael, because you say that uh, uh, teacher unions have clout in elections, partly because they are identified as representatives of people that are thought to be good people, responsible people, people that are contributing to the public welfare. So, um, so how do, wh what exactly do you find with respect to unions in elections? What kind of uh, what kind of an effect do their endorsements of a candidate have on that candidate's uh, chances of winning the election? So there's a small um, but uh, consistent finding uh, in research on the role of teachers unions in school board elections that shows basically when the unions make an endorsement in a competitive race, their candidates do really well. Uh, on average, they win about seven out of every ten elections where they make an endorsement. Um, and, and that number comes from studies that I've done uh, in New York, in California, in Florida. Um, and so we know that to be the case. Um, but I think um, my own work, Terry Moe's work on unions, has typically uh, drawn the conclusion that most of the success that unions have in electioneering school board outcomes, getting their candidates into office, is a product of the union's own efforts itself to either turn out its members or get its members to turn out their friends and family. The limitation of that though, is that teachers make up a, a pretty small share of the electorate. So even when these elections are held at odd times of the year, when turnout is low, uh, it's not clear that they're getting to that seven out of every 10 win rate simply on the backs of their own mobilizing. So what my co-author uh, Vlad Kogan and I set out to do was to look at whether part of the explanation for how successful teachers unions are in getting their favorite candidates elected to the school board is actually a product of the unions being able to convince the average voter uh, that their candidate is going to do a better job back to that common good, pursuing the common good of all stakeholders in the school district. Yeah, that's a really interesting point and uh, really an el elaboration of this idea that uh, that you know th that goes well beyond the sort of uh, standard explanation for union influence. Uh, low turnout in elections in general, uh, teachers will turn out to vote, uh, and therefore uh, because they turn out and vote and nobody else does, uh, they win the the union wins the election. Now you're saying. It's not quite that simple. Actually, most people respect the union endorsement because most people like their teachers that their children are having. Uh, teachers, you say, are a bit like doctors. So could you elaborate the analogy with doctors and nurses and how they have similar influence in the medical care industry? Right. So if you look across professions where the public says they trust these occupations, 
physicians and teachers tend to be at the top of those lists. We could imagine other professions. We don't have to name them, but we could imagine other professions. How about used car salesmen? How, how do they do? Or attorneys, you know, they're, yeah. Um, <laughs> but teachers and physicians are generally popular with the public. And um, so there's a great book out there that's already been written on the question of what are the implications of that uh, for healthcare policy. And one of the arguments that's made in that research on physicians is that the public tends to take um, verbatim whatever it is a physician's association happens to say is good evidence-based medicine uh, because they like their doctor, they trust their doctor, and they sort of forget the fact that the associations that represent physicians uh, also represent their occupational interests and that those aren't always aligned with what maybe evidence-based medicine is. So we, we sort of um, make the case that the same could be true in education, that you know if it were the case, that everything um, that was in the occupational interests of teachers perfectly aligned with what was good for children's learning, then this wouldn't be a concern. But if we can identify, and I think we can, instances where uh, occupationally what a school employee might want diverges from what would be uh, best for students in the district, then this can become a problem when voters simply assume that uh, the candidates that the teachers union uh, chooses to endorse are singularly focused on uh, moving the needle forward on student achievement as their top priority. Well, how valuable is a union endorsement in a school board election? Is it just a tiny impact or is it a substantial impact? Right. So, of course, I've already stated um, that in sort of just the data on elections, we see that the union endorsement uh, gets you, you know, seven out of 10 wins or out of every 10 contests, you win seven times. But we tried to go in a slightly different direction this time. We wanted, since we we're interested in how the public perceives union endorsements, we rely on a series of survey experiments. So we surveyed ordinary voters and um, we did this several times. We started with a survey um, uh, during a real world uh, series of school board elections that took place in San Diego, California about a decade ago. And then we followed up a decade later with a, a, a survey of a national sample of voters. And what we did was we presented these folks responding to our survey with uh, um, uh, a vignette, uh, if you will, of two candidates who were running for the school board. And we gave a, a brief biography of each candidate. Um, but the people answering our survey, sometimes we gave them information about which of the candidates had won the union endorsement and other times we didn't. And we did that at random so that we could determine what was the causal effect uh, of um, informing voters about a candidate's endorsement from the union. And so in San Diego, uh, um, we found that, that uh, the union endorsement will increased the likelihood um, of a respondent or a person that we were surveying saying that they would vote for the union endorsed candidate by six percentage points. And then a decade later, we found much the same with a national sample that um, when you told voters, this is the candidate that got the union endorsement, that candidate benefited about eight percentage points more um, being uh, saying they would vote for that candidate. Um, and, uh, and importantly, um, one of the things that we find is this is not just a story of getting Democrats and liberals and pro-union folks excited. Um, uh, in fact, what we found was that even though the endorsement uh, played a bigger role in exciting uh, liberals uh, and Democrats than it did other voters, that the union endorsement actually didn't have a negative effect 
uh, among Republicans. So it didn't increase the likelihood that Republicans would vote for the union-backed school board candidate. Um, but since there was such a big effect for Democrats and for independents um, uh, in, uh, on the aggregate, this is one of the factors we think that explains why unions are winning seven out of 10 elections is that the, the public tends to trust their endorsement. So now maybe it's just any old endorsement will boost a candidate's chances of winning. So it may not be just union. Did you look to see, oh, well, what if a business does or a parent group does or some other organization in the community endorses a candidate? Don't, do they get the same boost? That's a great question. Um, and yeah, we tried to get at this because, of course, the problem with the research to date on, um, you know, that number I give you that seven out of 10 times the union wins the election, we don't oftentimes have information on other groups that are active in the district and who they're endorsing to, to benchmark the effect of the union endorsement too. So in our more recent experiment, we did what's called a conjoint experiment. Um, and so for listeners who aren't familiar with what that is, think of it this way. This is a, this is a methodology that actually came out of market-based research. So uh, when companies say that sell television sets, want to understand what are the features of the television set that are most appealing to potential buyers, they can do a, an experiment where they show them um, a pair of potential TVs and then they vary the characteristics of the television. And when they run the experiment enough times, they can hone in on um, what characteristic of the television is most important to consumers. So we do much the same thing in our uh, conjoint experiment. We not only um, provide information that one of the candidates is endorsed uh, by the teachers union, but we also benchmark that to the endorsement uh, from the local chamber of commerce, uh, the local newspaper, and we find that the union endorsement packs a bigger punch than those other sorts of endorsements. So there's something uh, that voters like about the, the union. But how much more? Is it a lot more? Or yeah, significantly more. Significantly more. Um, it's a little hard to interpret uh, when you're talking about conjoint experiment. Uh, it's not the same as a simple treatment where you're just informing people that uh, there's a union endorsement or not. Um, but we find that it's about uh, twice the effect size of those of some of those other endorsements. Um, and then obviously it's much larger than the baseline, which is which is no endorsement. And additionally, um, partisanship. I want to come back to that here because as most folks know, school board elections are um, typically nonpartisan, although there is a movement in some states like Tennessee uh, to make school boards partisan. And so one of the things we did in our experiment was we, had a setup for some of the people that um, answered our survey, we gave them information on the candidate's partisanship. Uh, and in other instances, we did not give information about the candidate's partisanship. And so you might think that voters are rewarding, um, that are, are, are um, more likely to vote for the union endorsed candidate because they perceive that the union endorsement is just basically like this is a democratic candidate. But we actually find that the union endorsement is equally powerful um, when you supply information about partisanship. In fact, uh, to your question about how much does it matter, we find that the union endorsement relative to other endorsements uh, is as powerful as finding out that a school board candidate shares your partisanship, if we were to tell people that. So that's a pretty big effect size. Keep in mind that um, uh, typically in research on local politics, the, the advantage of incumbency has been benchmarked to about six percentage points. So the union endorsement is packing about as big of an electoral punch as does incumbency. Well, maybe this is the right thing for the voter to do because, uh, you know, where the teachers are 
are endorsing a candidate, the school board may be being doing good things for 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 children. So, uh, what's your you know have you looked at who is it that the the union endorses? What are the characteristics of incumbents? So, if an incumbent gets the endorsement of the union. Um, what are the circumstances? Do they do they endorse the candidates that uh, are shown to uh, put into place policies that boost student achievement, for example? Yeah. So when we conceived of the project, we thought about it sort of in the in the way Ronald Reagan once asked, "Are you better off than you were four years ago?" Except instead of asking uh, voters in a national election if they had more money in their pocketbook, we were sort of wondering when the teachers union decides whether to support incumbent school board members for re-election. Are they asking, like the voters think they are, is the district better off than it was four years ago? Or are they instead making that endorsement decision based on something more closely tied to the occupational interests of the teachers themselves, which would be sort of the rent-seeking hypothesis that I outlined uh, when we uh, began the chat today? And we find really clear uh, and compelling evidence that the only factor that is strongly predictive of teachers union giving their endorsement to an incumbent is whether the incumbent uh, provided a significant salary increase to senior teachers in the year before their reelection campaign. We find no evidence that even when the district improved on academic outcomes during the incumbent school board members tenure, that that made a difference one way or the other in the union deciding to support bringing that incumbent back into the district. So there was no, are you better off than you are were four years ago for the district as a whole, but there was a, am I better off than I was 12 months ago for the senior uh, teachers in the district? Well, okay, so you mentioned senior teachers and yeah, I'm, I've am i always been an advocate of the idea we should pay teachers more, especially the junior teachers, the beginning teachers, and some of the promotional material that's coming out of uh, Portland right now is they emphasize that a beginning teacher is only getting $50,000 a year. And that's probably true. I sort of looked this up on the Portland website and it did look like uh, the beginning teacher was only getting uh, something like $50,000 a year, which is a long ways away from the average of 87,000 if you think about it. You know, that means there's got to be a, a lot of teachers in Portland who are earning over $100,000 a year to bring up that average up to 87000 given the fact that there's got to be a considerable number of $50,000 teachers. So so in Portland, I don't, I think they're calling for a cross-the-board salary increase, aren't they? Are they? Or are they asking for a salary increase for the beginning teachers that is disproportionately large as part of their common good? Uh, commitment. I actually, uh, I can't speak specifically to whether they're asking for a differential for starting teacher salaries in Portland. Um, I, I will just observe, though, that kind of one of the problems in Portland and other places is that they're asking for a little of everything across the board. So I do know for a fact that they want smaller class sizes and they want teacher pay to go up and they want them to solve the affordable housing crisis in uh, blue cities on the East Coast. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, something has to give. Um, Rich Hess wrote a great piece recently observing that, look, if we had kept class sizes where they were 25 years ago, most teachers could be earning a six-figure salary. You know, a lot of this is about trade-offs and the unions typically um, or oftentimes are not willing to, to make those. Um, but what the reason I think the senior salary thing matters here that we found 
that incumbent support was predicted by senior salary increases. And let me be a little more specific. We found that about a 10% increase at the top of the salary schedule was associated with the union supporting 10% more uh, incumbents who were running for re-election. And we didn't find the robustness of that result for starting teacher salaries. But I think the problem is a, a couplefold. One is that, you know, Union allies might say, look, uh, paying higher salaries is part of a strategy to retain teachers, to improve uh, the quality of teachers in the district. And the literature, I think, is somewhat mixed on that question. But even if you are more likely to believe the studies that would suggest that there's a long-term payoff to raising teacher wages for the quality of the workforce, uh, that literature doesn't suggest that narrowly doing so for teachers at the top of the scale is the most sensible way to go about that, because we know that after teachers have reached 15 years of experience, they're very unlikely to leave the career. Um, so if you're really concerned about attracting and retaining uh, the best folks in the classroom early on, you wouldn't want to just support incumbents who are raising salaries disproportionately at the top of the scale. Uh, so I don't even think it, um, for people who think raising salaries is uh, a really solid policy approach uh, that the way uh, we're seeing it play out in California in regards to union um, uh, electioneering and school board elections makes a lot of sense. So one of the things they're asking for in Portland is uh, to have um, uh, uh, more teacher preparation time during the school day. I mean, it's not enough to have the fact that your day, work day is a little, you know, six hours a day. You do have, you know, if you're thinking of an eight hour day, you could do teacher preparation uh, after, after the school day ends, but uh, they want it during the school day. And, uh, but then the district says, well, Oregon law says we have to have so much instruction time during the in, in uh, during the school year, and we can't get that instruction time if we give you more teacher preparation time. So that strikes me as a really direct conflict between the teacher's interest in having more time to do their other duties and the student's desire or hope what's good for students is to have um, additional time for instruction. So um, isn't that sort of a clear example of a conflict between the interests of the students and the interests of the teachers? Well, yeah, I mean, and it also goes to the fact that, look, if you want to serve both those interests, you're going to have to hire more teachers and more teachers are more expensive. And if you hire more teachers, you can't afford to pay the ones that uh, that larger number of teachers as much as you could if you relied on a smaller number of teachers. So, look, it's like the old uh, Thomas Sowell quote uh, there, you know, there are no perfect solutions. There are only trade offs. And in thinking about what those trade offs should look like, if we're singularly focused on uh, what's best for students. Look, if we were single, singularly focused on what's best for students, Portland wouldn't have had, shut its schools uh, for well over a year. Part of the reason that they're in such a lurch right now in regard to their learning loss, in, agar, you know, in regard to trying to recover those enrollment losses is because they were so feckless throughout the pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, and the union played a role in that. Uh, they were uh, very tepid about reopening. And so now they're saying, look, we need more resources to fix the problem that we contributed to uh, a year ago. So, uh, you know, I think that's a clear example. The pandemic is probably the best example of where adult interests uh, got put ahead of student interests, particularly in a state where teachers were put at the front of the line uh, for vaccinations. I, I do just want to go back to one thing because I don't think it came through earlier when I, when you, you, you were asking me about 
um, sort of the whether it's a good thing uh, that voters, um, you know, if voters want union backed candidates to win and then they win, you know, how should we think about that? that and one other nugget um, from our study that's important is that we actually asked the, the voters who we surveyed um, what their perception was about the priorities of union endorsed candidates. And so, yes, on the one hand, when we asked them that, we did find that they were aware that union endorsed candidates were going to seek salary increases. So we can't say their voters are totally naive that unions are trying to improve the occupational outcomes for teachers. But interestingly, voters also said that the union-backed candidate was going to be the one that was more responsive to parents and the one that prioritized raising student achievement above all else. And I think that's the important point here is that um, it's, it's not, I'm not taking a normative position about whether it's good or bad that union endorsed candidates win, but I am sort of um, hinting that voters who are supporting these candidates misperceive, based on our own research here, um, what it is the union endorsement signals. The voters think it's a, we're going to be responsive to parents, we're going to emphasize student achievement, not just salaries, but when we actually look at who the unions choose to endorse, it's not connected to how well the district is faring academically. And so that seems at odds with what voters think they're buying when they uh, back a union endorsed candidate. Well, you know, we're not going to change the world uh, very easily. Uh, voters are going to do what they're going to do, and unions are going to do what they do, and teachers are going to do what they do. So you've got, you know, this is pretty much uh, locked in here. You you began 10 years ago and you get the, about the same results 10 years later, probably 10 years from now, you'll get the same results again. So what's the solution here? Are we going, do we, do we want school boards or what, what, how do we, how do we break this, this knot? I mean, look, this is why there are a lot of folks out there and I would count myself among them who are a big fan of governance reforms that move particularly large urban districts closer to uh, what's commonly referred to as a portfolio management model of governance, where the idea is, you know, you have a lot of different types of schools, charter schools, magnet schools, maybe in some states you even have some forms of private school choice, and the district governance authority, whatever that is, be it a school board or a mayoral controlled system, doesn't get into the business of deciding for each school building, how should curriculum work, which teachers should you hire, they stay out of that. And instead, they play uh, an important role, but a much more limited and narrow role, which is they um, decide which schools to reauthorize to stay in business. And they're really agnostic about what type of school it is. And so I think this, you know, the findings of this study are just it's another research study out there that's showing that politics often compromise uh, policymaking that singularly focuses on what's good for students. And the more that we can try and constrain politics and governance in a direction that doesn't sever democracy, we want voters to be able to weigh in, but which doesn't reduce uh, every decision to an interest group political battle when it comes to making sure we have a good supply of high quality schools in a district and we're really evaluating those schools uh, based on objective criteria and it doesn't become sort of just a, a political uh, power game. Well, in the short run, we, we have some, re some significant events that are about to occur. We're going to see the end of uh, substantial federal funding, the biggest increase in federal funding that uh, the country has ever seen is 
probably going to go come to an end. It's certainly not going to remain at its current level. And secondly, we're seeing declining enrollments, uh, especially in urban areas, uh, and especially in uh, on the on the coasts. Uh, enrollment gains are occurring in Texas and Florida and the South more generally. But um, you know, there's a lot of and if you have enrollment decline, you have scarcity of resources that are going to get committed to to education. Are we about to see some a wave of teacher strikes uh, across the across the countryside? I think so. And if we don't get strikes, we're certainly going to get cries of districts uh, are cutting funding. When in reality, the writing has been on the wall ever since you know the pandemic legislation on ESSER funds was clear, like, you know, this is going to run out, this unprecedented $200 billion injection of federal money, which was, you know, several fold more than the typical 10 cents on the dollar that uh, Uncle Sam throws into K-12 funding. Um, we knew this was going to happen. And we also knew not only because of long-term demographic changes in the number of uh, kids that people are having, uh, but also the enrollment declines from COVID, some of which won't totally come back. That's just a perfect storm uh, for districts are going to have to make uh, some really hard decisions. And it's pretty clear that the unions are going to say, look, you're cutting spend, you're cutting uh, students, teachers, you're cutting access to paraprofessionals. So I would only expect to see more of the political strategy of using rhetoric about common good bargaining. This is not going to be your 1970s uh uh, union collective bargaining, where it's just bread and butter issues. We're just asking for salary increases. They'll ask for those things, but it's going to be pitched as part of a much broader uh, claim that school leaders are cutting funding. And that's an effective strategy for the unions because, you know, parents like small class sizes. Parents don't like the idea that their uh, their child's school is losing uh, an art teacher or uh, phys uh, sports are being cut back or whatever it might be. And so I do think it's going to be very politically difficult for school districts to come up with a solution that satisfies political stakeholders in this uh, in this environment of austerity that's coming. Well, can you give us one hopeful comment in in, in the end, uh, Michael? Yeah. We we don't want to end on this negative note here. So uh, what can you say that might give us some hope that uh, things will get better? Well, I think it is a positive thing that you've got uh, new folks entering the arena and running for the school board. And I'm hoping that some of the momentum that we saw during the pandemic uh, where you had uh, groups that were really concerned that parents had been marginalized, you know, huge, important decisions being made about how long schools were going to re remain closed were being made through side deals, uh, uh, memorandum of understanding between unions and school districts with parents really like in the dark. And I think that has catalyzed um, a new group of folks who are running. I think you know, to temper that a little bit, what I'd like to see is that while there are groups out there that got ignited based on COVID and maybe some of the culture war issues, uh, probably most notably to folks listening, groups like Moms for Liberty, I'd like to see that tent grow a little bit so that there's a parent voice out there that's not just seen through a partisan prism. And instead, we get not just Moms for Liberty, but we get groups like Moms for Literacy. But the bottom line being, uh, groups of folks that are new and not establishment running for school board that offer a different vision and can lay out there for voters very clearly, look, you may think the such and such teachers association is a benign sounding organization that's just going to do things that are good for kids. 
there are some conflicting interests there that you need to be aware of. I think candidates uh, coming from that parents focused background can make that case. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Uh, I've been finding uh, this uh, analysis of uh, union endorsements uh, a fascinating contribution to our understanding of the politics of education. Thank you, Paul. Great to be with you as always. I'm pleased to have had with me on the Education Exchange today, Michael Hartney, a Hoover Fellow. He's at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is co-author of a just-released paper entitled The Politics of Teacher Union Endorsements. And he's the author of a new book entitled How Policies Make Interest Groups. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.